Support for A Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Highland Canine Training, the industry leader in professional dog training solutions and premier canine education. Highland Canine Training offers turnkey solutions for everyone, from pet owners to law enforcement and military organizations. Learn more at highlandcanine.com. It's hard not to be a fan of race if you really think about it, understand how how it has evolved and how it has sustained itself and what kind of people are engaged, right? So you felt it yourself up in this community. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, uh, I'm, really, I'm really honored to be part of it. I recall one of those checkpoints, uh, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, I don't know, and checking dogs and um, clear sky, full moon, and one of the dogs starts howling, and then all the dogs start howling. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> And this is when the coronavirus was starting to pick up and we have no idea that that was going on in the rest of the world. And your emotional state is so up and down because you're on limited sleep and it's cold and you're racing and you're tired. And It, it was kind of a similar fashion to how I ran the Iditarod. I found out I was going to run the race like one week before I ran it. The freedom of just you and dogs traveling through unmarked uh, territory is like uh, it's such a almost a spiritual feeling and I guess I say spiritual feeling because you know I think it's a, a God-given gift to be able to do so I mean how many people even could dream of doing that much less have that opportunity much less have that opportunity for you know years I just feel so um, blessed that and and part of it is um i have such great respect for the people of alaska and how you know you talk about a different difficult environment to come into and to pursue your dreams in this is a difficult environment and yet together with dogs they you know accomplished an amazing amount and I feel like I'm involved in living history when I get to share that. It's early March in Anchorage, and it's bitter cold. Not record-breaking cold, but still well below freezing and snowy. Planes are busy overhead, and the city's bustling with traffic. There's an energy in the air that is as prevalent as the cold biting wind. Something quite remarkable is about to happen on a scale that no one can really yet understand. From A Life of Dogs, I'm Jason Ferguson, and this is the iconic race of the North. The sled dog sport is what I call a 9,000 year evolution of uh, co cohabiting this earth with sled dogs. Uh, National Geographic just uh, con concluded uh, carbon dating on, a, on, a, on some digs, archaeological digs, in which they proved that 
sled dogs had been deliberately bred for performance 9,000 years ago. Now, we're not talking domestication. We're not talking just having having the Urwolf become a, a, a family member. We're talking what they described as deliberate sled dog breeding, meaning the nomadic or semi-nomadic people of the Siberian Peninsula, they deliberately bred dogs for their for their cohabitation, meaning those dogs pulled sledges, the sledges were big and, and loaded with their earthly belongings. They were not yet riding the sleds because uh, evidence shows that the, the runners were upturned in on both sides of the sled. Ergo, you couldn't just ride on it unless you were sitting on it, which is possible. Um, freighting then started to give way to the, to the survival dogs, meaning uh, people were more sedentary and supplies needed to be delivered to the outposts as, as far as your imagination. All that, of course, in the Arctic. And, and the difference between horses who only have been utilized for 6,000 years, uh, they have excelled in the warmer climates, whereas dogs, because of their physiology, have, have surpassed anything else in the Arctic climate and not being able to perspire is one of the main reasons they have have evolved like that. Um, and then after after the freighting millennia, literally hundreds of years of freighting supplies into the most remote places, then of course the gold miners were a little bored in the winter time and because the ground is frozen you can't do a lot of digging in the ground when the ground is frozen so they started to uh, have dog races to pass the time uh, not only driving races but betting on races and so it became a pastime of the north to to follow the greatest dog drivers and the greatest dogs and that's where we are now we just simply have taken that that sport of the early 20th century and beyond we have taken that sport and and selectively bred and helped evolution to a, a super dog that we now simply lump together on the term of Alaskan Husky. Most of your listeners might be familiar with the Siberian Huskies, which is a pure breed. They are the dogs that would be representing the 1920s. They were often direct imports from the Russian peninsula, ergo the Siberian name. The Siberian Huskies were typecast as a pure breed, uh, and because of that, they still have to look like the 1920s. Uh, a good example for your listeners would be in, 19, in, the same, in the same era, the Model T Ford happened to be the fastest car. Nobody made a standard for automobiles. That's how they have to look or drive. Whereas any dog breed that gets typecast has to stagnate because you're no longer letting evolution evolve. You're stagnating, you're stopping the, the evolution. And if the, clock, if the clock is your judge, you don't care whether you're brown, black, white, or polka dotted. And that's where the Alaskan Huskies are, a, a term I use a lot to describe my dogs because it's, it's hard for people to, to look at them and say, well, what are these dogs? I often say they are like um, a term you probably know, Americans. And then people look at you and say, yeah, that's, of course, we don't care whether you're black or white or polka dot. What matters is the intrinsic values, your physiological makeup, your morphology, the way you move down the trail, way, way more important than whether you have blonde hair or polka dotted hair. So, so that's, that gives people a bit of an idea what the Alaskan Huskies, which is 99% of all the competitive teams are made up of those dogs. That's what those dogs are. That's Martin Boozer.
a legend in the dog mushroom world, and four-time Iditarod champion. Martin came from Switzerland and has run 36 Iditarods. During our time in Alaska, we had the opportunity to get to know more about Martin, and we'll share more about him later. Each year, on the first Saturday of March, an amazing event takes place, starting in Anchorage. Many of you know it as the Iditarod Sled Dog Race. We had the fortune of covering the 2020 Iditarod, and it was truly an experience like no other. This event and all it entails is indescribable. However, over the next few episodes, I'm going to try to bring you the story of the race. But first, we'll need to rewind several months and learn more about the people who compete in this more than 1,000-mile journey and what it takes to prepare for such an endeavor. We start with Wade Mars, a 10-time competitor, top five finisher, and the owner of Stump Jumping Kennels. Um, well, my mom and uncle used to train dogs with me strapped on the wheelers and stuff with a car seat, and um, then mushing. I ran my first two-dog race when I was five years old. I've been running two dogs since I was probably four, four years old. Um, well, I got my first race dogs when I was about 10 years old. I ran my first race of, uh, on my own. It was the uh, Goose Bay 120 and the junior I did a rod in 2007. And so uh, the name Stump Jumping Kennel didn't come to fruition until probably around 2010, 2012. But um, the kennel's been building ever since about 2007. I've uh, ran the Iditarod nine times now. Yeah, my first one was in 2009. I was uh, 18 years old. Ran it as early as possible. And um, I took a couple years off after my first one and started back in 2012 and have ran every race since 2012. So. My name is Anna Barrington, and uh, my twin sister and I, Christy, we grew up in northern Wisconsin, probably about as far north in Wisconsin as you can get. Um we had pet dogs and cows and horses and chickens and things just on a farm growing up. And uh, our neighbor had sled dogs. So that was our first experience with sled dogs. And we had been fans of um, Gary Paulson's books and Disney movies and things like that. So the, and this, the outdoors. So that's how we first got our, uh, our feet wet, I guess, with um, sled dogs um, being able to run and work with our neighbor who had sprint racing dogs, which is told, was quite a bit different than what we do now. Uh, I, this is Christy. I first moved up here in 2007, kind of scouted out, and then uh, shortly after that, we both moved up here. When we were kids, we were involved in it as much as we could be, and when we graduated, we both joined the Army National Guard and did some school and took a small break from it, but felt that yearning to go back to it, and after our commitments with school and the military, we found ourselves in California working at a sled dog tour place, which eventually brought us to Alaska to look for dogs to purchase for that um, touring outfit. And we met, I did a Roger champion, Dean Osmar, and he was looking for kennel help. And they're called handlers when you work for a, camp, a kennel, doing basic chores and exercising the dogs. So he offered us a job right then and there and 
we've been up here ever since. At the time, we were living in a tent in the Sierra Nevada mountains. We packed everything up on our backs and uh, have called Alaska home ever since. Got a one-way ticket. Um, this is Anna. I've run eight Iditarods, and Christy's run ten Iditarods, and then she's also done the Yukon Quest, which is another 1,000-mile race that gets started February 1st. But we're not in that one this year, but it's, it's in the back of our minds for the coming next season. That was Christy and Anna Barrington, identical twin sisters who own Seeing Double Sled Dog Racing, a kennel with over 50 dogs. Christy has been running the Iditarod since 2010, and Anna since 2012. Up next, we hear from Casey Merringer, a native of Michigan and one of several 2020 rookie Iditarod mushers that we spoke with. Where I grew up in Michigan, they have a, a dog sled race called the UP 200. And the trail goes right behind my old house where I grew up as a kid and always loved dogs, always loved winter. And one year I just said, Mom, Dad, this looks fun. And they found a musher in the area and went and tried it out. Did my first race when I was seven years old. Two dog, I think it was like a mile or so. It's a little fun race. And the guy said, all right, Casey, one thing you got to know is don't let go of the dog sled. And I thought, well, why would that be an issue? I'll, I'll stand up straight. And sure enough, flipped over and got dragged for about half of it and never let go. And the guy came out, got me right side up, said good job, and went on to finish the race. So <laughs> come a long way since then. So you did half the race flipped over? I think so, yeah, or at least pretty close to that. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite figure out how to use my feet to pop up, but we're good now if that happens. <laughs> and then two years later, I got my kennel started with my first two sled dogs and took off from there. And now, 20 years later, I believe, um, we're up here, signed up for our rookie Iditarod. So it feels good to finally be coming full circle. This annual race, often termed the Super Bowl of Alaska, requires an enormous amount of training and preparation. For many mushers, the work to prepare for next year's race begins as soon as this year's race is over. Here's Wade Mars again. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work. So we'll, um, probably the, the biggest work jobs are the um, training of the dogs, obviously. We'll train them between 20 and 100 miles a day. They'll put on about two to 3,000 miles of training runs before the race ever starts. And then uh, also, you know, cutting the food drops for the race itself. We'll send out about uh, 2,000 pounds of cut-up meat and kibble and stuff like that for the dogs to eat along the trail. So that's a lot of work, too. <laughs> I almost immediately put in my order for the booties. The dogs all wear booties on their feet. We'll send about 3,000 booties out on the trail. Uh, for the dogs to use, so we'll order those up right away and get those matched together and bagged and ready for next year and try to get as far done as far ahead as possible so when training season comes, we can focus solely on training as much as possible. Oh, yeah, there's about 20 checkpoints along the trail that we'll send gear to, and you send out anywhere between 2,000 to 2,500 pounds of it, of stuff to the checkpoints and that stuff is it's dog food a lot of dog food um dog booties runner plastic extra socks and gloves for the people people food more dog food 
um, gloves, socks, batteries, yeah, other gear for the dogs. We send out dog blankets, and um, they the dogs will wear, besides the booties, they wear coats. They have a little powder skirt for the coat. They have these sleeves that they sometimes wear, and we send out massage liniments. And so just it's all those things, and you have to – that stuff is sent out about two weeks before the race starts. So you have to have somewhat of a plan of where you want these things. And, so I mean, certain parts of the race have a reputation of being extra cold, extra bad weather, or things like that. And there's you know there's certain long runs that you need to prepare for, where you're going to camp out, where you're going to want extra, extra things. So you sit down, you plan all that out, and leading up to it is a lot of meat cutting. We cut a lot of meat. So we boil our meat in about 50-pound blocks, and we cut that into small pieces about the size of a loaf of bread. I compare everything to people food. A slice of bread and then like sizes of snacks that are about the size of a, a Snickers bar, just different kinds of meat. We send out fish, beef, fat, beef, chicken, chicken tripe horse, lamb, lots of different chicken skin, yeah, beaver, lots of different food. Yeah, we write, I do uh, scheduling for the race so I can stick to a schedule on the trail and training and stuff, so I'll start writing that as soon as I finish. I did a rod while it's still fresh in my brain. I'll jot down a schedule for the next year's race while I'm remembering all the different things that I thought of out on the trail, so. Um, usually we replace our sled every year, um, and get that ready, uh, so we have to build a new, new sled. Yep, yeah, I literally just, uh, just bought all the pieces today when I was in town, so, um, we're gonna start building that here, uh, this evening, and, uh, get it ready for Iditarod. I'm basically gonna model his exact sled design. So, I had the opportunity to race with it, and just it was awesome. Handled really nicely. Um, so I had to buy the sled runners from a specialty store up in Fairbanks, Alaska, that sells them. And then I went to a, a welding place and and bought um, aluminum stanchions and the framework for for my sled. And then I had to go to a, a plastics place to um, get things like the handlebar and the brush bow and and the the sled. Uh, basket bottom so everything I'm gonna put my gear on top of that'll support it so a few different places but thankfully Matthew's a, a handyman we're gonna pretty much custom build all of our parts and pieces to uh, save a lot of money because typically a sled if you were going buy it outright it's usually around three up to six thousand dollars sometimes um, but we're probably gonna build mine for a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred dollars. Oh yeah, we did build our sleds and have been maintaining them since. Sometimes we'll get a little help from one of the sled builders around here to update some things. But it's when you built your sled, it's a lot easier to fix it if you bust it out on the trail. So that's good knowledge to have. And we also build all our dog houses. Yeah, we mix liniments and massage oils for the dogs. So those are those are the things we make. We've made special treats for the dogs before. And my mother-in-law can sew anything, so she's really great about uh, doing stuff for our dog coats and uh, like we mentioned bags. the yeah sled bags and the sleeves and everything else that the dog wears. But uh, we do order all our booties from our favorite local mushing supply store that has them 
because we use so many, it just takes so long for an individual to make 4,000 booties. And that's just for Iditarod. We do a lot of middle distance races and training that we, we use booties, and we wash them and reuse them, but uh, they eventually wear out. In addition to preparing food, equipment, and supplies for the race, it's important to keep in mind that there's lots of work that goes into training and caring for the top athletes that'll actually move the sled. Teams also have other hurdles to conquer before entering the Iditarod. We'll learn about all this and more when we return, so stay with us. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. The individual health of every dog is as unique as they are. However, these health needs are often characteristic of their size, breed, or lifestyle. Each individual recipe is formulated to deliver the exact level of natural antioxidants, vitamins, fiber, prebiotics, and minerals that are essential to your pet's unique health needs. Discover how Royal Canin products can help every pet enjoy its best health possible. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research and development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. Highland Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their school for dog trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandCanine.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. Because we know the involvement, we know the, the commitment, the year-round, daily, not only time and financial-wise, but lifestyle-wise commitment that it takes. We're, we're very, very cautious in, in not having people fall into that lightly because it's such a huge commitment. Anytime you, you work with living things, you have to be there all the time. Um, then, if we, can, if we cannot talk them out of it, of course, I do my absolute best to to be a good teacher, a good mentor, a good coach. It's kind of a weird role reversal. I never really thought that I would be a mentor. Um, so it's flattering to have, you know, maybe she, if she called me that. Because um, my, my buddy Martin Boozer, who's like the Dale Earnhardt of our sport up here, is Martin Boozer. He's a four-time champion. He's in the Hall of Fame, and he taught me. So now I'm at a point where I can take the, his teachings and then pass them on to the next generation, which is kind of cool. She's an awesome dog musher. She's um, very patient with them, very loving with them. Um, she is a hard, hard worker. I've never heard her complain once. 
she never asks for a day off. I mean, that is like, if you own a business, that's the type of employee you want. Someone who's ready to go to work every day. And this is what she loves to do. And she's been dreaming of it since she was little. So I'm really happy to be able to provide her the dogs to go down the trail. It might, it might sound silly and kind of like a common sense thing, but we're always just saying, you know, go have fun. If, if, if things get rough, you know, don't let it, don't let it get you down. Just look at your dogs and how amazing they are and just, and just keep moving on. This commitment, and more importantly, this positive attitude, is vital to making it through the Iditarod. A lot of work goes into raising and training these extreme canine athletes. We return to Wade to give us an idea of what this is like. Yeah, so the, the dogs we use are called the Alaskan Huskies, which are just a fancy word for a mutt. Uh, they're just mixed bred dogs. So they um, took, back in the day, they took the more tough, fluffy, Siberian type of dog that is uh, built for the outdoor elements and stuff. And they mix those with different kinds of hounds, like greyhounds, Lukies, pointers, dogs like this. And um, eventually it came down to a nice, even breed uh, between them to where we have the high energy and high attitude of the hound, but we still have the toughness and the endurance of the husky. So they can handle the outdoor conditions and they can travel much faster. Um, some people today still use the traditional purebred Siberian dogs. Those guys are usually three to four days slower than the, the uh, Alaskan huskies. So it, the mixed breeds came out a lot better. They have great, uh, great health and um, longevity. So they'll start training for their first time at six months old. That's only about a half mile to a mile run at a time. Uh, with some older dogs, they'll start uh, coming into shorter races, 150, 200 mile races as yearlings, year and a half olds. Um, and two-year-olds, they're very solid for middle distance racing. Every once in a while, but rarely a two-year-old will make the race team for the Iditarod. Um, we try to start them mostly in the competitive side of things at uh, three years old because that's when they're more fully developed uh, physically. And then they retire usually between 8 and 12 years old, um, which is pretty pretty long uh, working life for the dogs. And on average, they live till about 17 years old, I would say. We have 40 dogs that are in training, and some of those are, are younger dogs that are more essentially trying out for the team and experiencing all their first races and just getting a grasp. They're like a freshman JD dog, but they're also our bench warmers in case uh, somebody's ill or a female comes into heat and is a huge distraction on the team that we we opt to leave those ones at home in, in a case like that. So they're they're training for it, but um, definitely not on, on the dream team yet. Next year, they'll be prime time. It'll be exciting to put those guys on the varsity team yeah when it comes down to picking each of us our top 14 dogs that's going to be hard to only pick 14 because we've got a lot of really nice dogs to work with yeah so that was my next question is how hard is it to to get it down to the 14 and you know when is the final decision made and you know how do you how do you approach that it's a a slow process but i did it has a lot of qualifications for the dogs to even run the race uh the first 
thing they go through is blood work and an EKG. Uh, so you can submit 24 dogs for that whole process. And then a week after that, you have to submit 20 dogs for a physical health check. So they force you to slowly whittle that number down. Yeah, so the uh, so I guess the process starts as puppies, and the number one thing is puppies is socialization, um, making sure that the puppies love interacting with people and are good good interacting with people and interacting with other dogs and stuff like that. So that's where our process begins, um, and those two things are very important. We'll have veterinarians on the trail and volunteers and stuff that they're going to be interacting with constantly. Um, a lot of the kids from the villages come running out to say hi to the dogs and stuff. So, so that's the number one thing that we look for in the dogs early on is just human and, and other dog interactions. And then as they get older and start running on the team, next attributes that we look for are um, attitude. Attitude's very important for um, ones that just want to do it and love to do it. Uh, very rarely these days, but every once in a while we'll find one that just is not interested in running, and usually those guys become a house potato somewhere, uh, or a couch potato somewhere. And um, uh, But most of the dogs these days just absolutely thrive on the, on the running of the team, running in the team and stuff. So, so that's the next thing we look for as we're training them as young dogs is just their attitude and their love for doing it. And then as they get older and start leaning towards making the race team, a little bit more comes into play, athleticism. Um, the dogs have to be able to run at high speeds, 17 to 20 miles an hour. Um, and then they have to be able to continuously move smoothly at 11, 12, 10, 11 miles an hour for, for long, long distances. Um, and so we look for that kind of thing with the athleticism and the endurance on the dogs. And then uh, appetite's a huge thing for our team because um, on the race they're eating ten to 12,000 calories a day. So they have to just really love to eat and, uh, uh, eat, you know, put food down very quickly. And so those are some of the things we look for. Obviously, um make sure that the dogs are hardy and, and built well, have uh, smooth gates. That way they don't get sore wrists or anything like that. Um, if the dogs are getting sore, then they maybe can't handle it. the speeds we're going or something like that. So if a dog doesn't fit into the race team from the B team, um, and, and usually they're just a little bit different style than what we prefer in our team, and so a lot of us mushers will sell or trade each other dogs that might fit better with their team versus our team. And that works out really good because the dogs still get to do what they love and they, they get to a place where they fit in good and, and are going to uh, perform well and, and excel, you know. So that's kind of the process is going through uh, from puppies into race team and then once they're ready to finish with the race team you can kind of tell them their both their attitudes again and their eating habits and also their performance on the trail so if they're starting to slow down a little bit on our runs then obviously they're maybe getting a little bit too old to keep up with the pace or if they're stopping eating then maybe they're 
getting too much exercise and and it's taking their interest off of food. Um, or obviously if they're acting pouty or sad that they have to run, then maybe it's a little bit past their time or something along those lines. So you can see it in the dogs very well that they're ready to end their career or be done running. Um, but you can tell when they're ready to go too. So, <laughs> and some of the old dogs, their attitude never changes, but you can see it in the performance. So, um, so there's uh, 18 of them that are training on my main race team. And, uh, most likely I'll start with 14 of those 18. And then we have, uh, about 14 that are training on a B team. And most of those guys are one and two year olds and a couple of, older dogs that don't need the harder training as the race team does so uh, a couple of those older dogs might get you know come back into the team for I did a rod but um, we have a second driver this year who's training up that second team and he'll be running them in a couple middle distance races getting qualified for I did a rod next year so yeah we start pretty light in August we start just kind of like you would as a uh, human athlete, we start very lightly in August uh, with like three-mile runs and stuff like that and slowly build them up with fives and tens until eventually we're training between 20 and 100 miles a day. And we'll do, in training, we'll do camp, camp outs, two, 300-mile camp outs and kind of simulate our, our race and stuff like that um, through those camps. Uh, but in the summertime, when their time off is, uh, we give them about a month, uh, between a month and two of just relaxation and recovery time to make sure that they all come back 100% from anything. Um, and uh, then we start free running them loose and running them in the swamps and playing in the marsh and stuff like that. They love running down in the water and cooling off on a hot summer day and stuff, so We'll do a lot of that kind of training with them in the off-season. As I found out, entering the Iditarod sled dog race is far more involved than just signing up and showing up on the day with a team of dogs. Each participant must run a number of shorter races prior to the Iditarod in order to qualify for the race. You have to have 750 racing miles, so they ask you to do two 300-mile races, or at least that distance, so... For myself, that was the Copper Basin 300 and the Kobuk 440. And then you have to have one race that's at least 150 miles, so I did the Goose Bay 150. But not only do you have to finish all of those races, you have to have race judge and race veterinary approval saying that, you know, yes, you were out there on the trail and you were able to take care of your dog and yourself um, out there in the wilderness of Alaska. Um, just to make sure when you get on the actual Iditarod Trail, you're prepared and you know what you're doing out there. So it, it is a process, but um, they do it for a very good reason. So before you're on the Iditarod for your first time, you have to qualify. And um, you have to run 750 miles of qualifying races, so two 300-mile races and a 150-mile race or 200. And um, those races take place anywhere from December to April. Uh, all over the state, there's quite a few of them in the lower 48 and in Canada and stuff as well that people use for qualifiers. But once you uh, run the Iditarod, you're permanently qualified once you finish, um, unless the, there's a special committee that can review you and say you need to requalify under certain conditions. So 
But, uh, yeah, once you're competing and finishing I did a run and stuff, you're permanently qualified. And uh, But each year we will compete in other races just to um, sometimes for purse money and sometimes just for fun. And the dogs enjoy getting around other teams and going to new places and stuff like that. So we'll sign up for a couple other races every year just to for those experiences. I had the fortune to spend months getting to know more about what the Iditarod sled dog race was all about. From the mushers to the dogs, all the volunteers and everyone else that makes this event happen, it truly is a massive undertaking. One odd fact that demonstrates this is that crews often spend an incredible amount of time hauling in dump truck loads of snow to cover 4th Avenue and the other streets of Anchorage to ensure that the ceremonial start takes place. Nope, that's real. Uh, we've had they'll, they'll haul dump trucks loads of snow a few days before the race, or they're uh, making it so we can run through downtown Anchorage. And other year when it was such low snow, they had it hauled in by rail car from Fairbanks because they needed to do some sort of ceremonial start here in Anchorage. So yeah, that's one of their preparations for Saturday that day is to get something for us to run on in town. Like where we live, there's more sled dogs than people. And we don't have Super Bowl or professional teams for anything, so it gives people in the state something to follow and rally around. And it's a it's a really fun time of year. The fur rondy that happens with the sprint racing and I did a rod. It's just it's a great time. Yeah, there's so many races up here to do that you can travel from like where we're at within 360 miles. You can get to almost every single race that Alaska holds. And then if you're in the Midwest, if you want to go all the way out to Montana or Colorado or any place like that that has a race, it, it seems like more of a trek. And there's just so many other mushers around here that it, it is a community and it has a very historic hold out here that there's a lot of old timers that can tell you how it was and how, you know, help you out with things and, you know, see all these trails and places. It, it, it feels like the place to be if you want to professionally um uh pursue dog mushing it's the super bowl of alaska <laughs> it is yeah <laughs> gotcha. this race is a spectacular event to experience even as a spectator as a competitor even more so casey the rookie explains as she also expresses her desire to become part of an elite club yeah, so every rookie musher that finishes Iditarod, um, they give you a, a belt buckle when you become part of the Iditarod Finishers Club. So it's a it's a pretty elite club. There's actually more people that have been to the top of Mount Everest than have finished this sled dog race. So I'm looking forward to, to being a part of that as well. Being a musher and competing in the Iditarod is incredibly time-consuming, expensive, and demanding. What has been covered in this episode is only a fraction of the work and commitment it takes. So some may ask, why do they do it? The answer is pretty simple, actually. It's for the love of the dogs, and to continue to allow these dogs to do what they love. When the Iditarod is mentioned, most people immediately conjure up images of Balto or Togo, and think of the serum run that saved the people of Nome in 1925. But as Casey explains, the race has more to do with Joe Reddington Sr. and a commitment to save the Alaskan sled dog. 
And then we get a lot of misconceptions, too, about Iditarod and the connection to the serum run. And people always go, well, why didn't you talk about that? You know, what about Balto and all this? And the Iditarod was not actually created for that reason. Um, a guy by the name of Joe Rainson Sr., he's, he's the father of the Iditarod, is what they called him. And he noticed back in the 1960s that the machines, the slow machines, we're actually replacing the sled dogs up here for transportation. Um, and he didn't like, like, like the thought of that at, at all. So he came up with the Iditarod sled dog race to um, keep those sled dogs around and keep that tradition alive up here in Alaska. And today, actually, dog sledding is the official uh, state sport up here. So the Iditarod, while it does cover part of that serum trail from Ruby to Nome, it wasn't actually created to commemorate that run at all. I want to thank you for joining us for our first episode covering the Iditarod Sled Dog Race and hope that you'll subscribe to hear our upcoming episodes that guarantee to deliver some spectacular stories from the trail. They want to kill the Iditarod and they're experts at killing. There's no question about it. In our next episode, learn about the controversy surrounding the race and what it takes to care for these special canine athletes. Until then, we leave you with Reddington's Run by Hobo Jim Varsos. Well, I can still see him smile over all those miles of the frozen snow and ice. He was the kind of man who always lent his hand. He was quick on good advice. Here's to Joe and it's off we go. In the land of the midnight sun They call this race the Iditarod Trail To me it's Reddington's Run In my heart it's Reddington's Run From the city lights of Anchorage To the finish line in Nome you never find a village that he couldn't call his home And no matter how hard the going got He was never afraid to run Where another man would just give it in Joe had just begun Here's to Joe and it's off we go In the land of the midnight sun mm, They call this race the Iditarod Trail To me it's Reddington's Run In my heart it's Reddington's Run Now a cold wind blows And everybody knows it'll never be the same Every musher cried on the night you died And every husky howled your name Here's to Joe and it's off we go In the land of the midnight sun They call this race the Iditarod Trail To me it's Reddington's Run In my heart it's Reddington's Run Hey, here's to Joe and it's off we go in the land of the midnight sun They call this race the Iditarod Trail To me it's Reddington's Run May it always be Reddington's